great to be here this morning and to open the Word of God once again together. I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, you'll notice that we are not going to be in the Gospel or the book of Romans this morning. Being communion morning, I want to take a moment just and reflect our time upon a portion of Hebrews, and we are going to be focusing our attention on chapter 10 and verses 1 through 10, and the subject of the saving will of God, the saving will of God, or Christ, as I've titled it, once for all. Follow along as I begin our time this morning by reading in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the roll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then He said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Stop there. When you study the book of Hebrews, as we have in the past, you certainly notice that there are three different and prominent features that seem to continue to stand out. First, you notice that there is very often a repeating or a repetition, if you will, of many of the truths or many of the the teachings, the doctrines that are being taught within the book. In fact, The writer of Hebrews, some believe it's the Apostle Paul, I I tend to think it was someone else, but the writer of Hebrews never apologizes in giving a repeating of the same truths. He never says, oh, by the way, sorry about this, but I have to repeat this one more time. There's never any hesitation in the writer of Hebrews in repeating over and over again things that are deemed important for all of us to understand. This is, just by way of a side note, when you think about it, 
This is the way we ought to teach. This is the way we learn. This is how God has ordained us to learn, to be under the truth continuously, to have things that we have heard over and over and over again repeated to us over and over and over again. We are all like the Jewish believers that the writer of Hebrews is addressing. We are at times dull of hearing and very slow to learn. So repetition is a great aid for us in learning. So very often, God, the Spirit, who has carried along the writers of Scripture, repeats truths for us to remember. Things we've heard before. Things that we are familiar with in many, many ways. And so, in the book of Hebrews, you see that happening time and time again. There's another thing that you will notice, and that is the constant reference, as we have just in our passage of reading, to the Old Testament. In fact, there are quotes from the Old Testament in every chapter of the book of Hebrews. Of course, chapters, numbers are there for our aid. They weren't there when the Jews had the Bible originally. They were put there just to aid in categorizing things. But in every chapter of Hebrews, you find quotes from the Old Testament. And in the context of the book of Hebrews, this makes a whole lot of sense. Because the, this is primarily being written to Jews. Primarily being written to those who, who understood the old Mosaic law. The Old Testament was of great importance to every Jew, especially to a converted Jew. You say, why so? Because they understood the law and they wanted to understand all the the implications of that for their life. And so the continued allusions in Hebrews to the Old Testament confirms the value of the Old Testament in the minds and the hearts of the Jew. And it also was the foundation upon which all of the new things are built. And need to be embraced. So you see both a repetition and you see a quoting from the Old Testament continuously through the book of Hebrews. And then thirdly, there is a consistent reference to a principle. And then that principle you won't hear about for some time. And then later you will see that principle resurface and get further explanation. All of those are found actually in chapter 10. All of those things. And the comparison being made between the old law and the sacrificial system and Jesus Christ is repeated again. If you were studying Hebrews, if we could go back all the way to chapter 1, you would see that that theme coming through. That Christ is the best. That the old system was, while good, didn't accomplish what it needed to. And we see that here in chapter 10. The law versus Christ. And right out of the gate, in verses 1 through 4, we are reminded that the law is only a reflection of the real thing. You notice what he says. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, 
can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased. Otherwise, there would be no consciousness of sin. So, with the opening words of chapter 10, we are reminded that the law is but a shadow. The Old Testament system, the idea of carrying out the dues in order to, especially when it came to the sacrificial system, in order to have your sin somehow dealt with. That is but a shadow. In other words, it is not the good things to come, but it is a shadow of the good things. And we understand the point. Because how absurd it would be for someone who has the substance of something, someone who has the real thing, how absurd it would be for someone who's holding the real thing to go back and and claim a reality in the shadow. How absurd it would be for us to go outside on a day like today with the sun shining and go and try to lean up against the shadow of the tree. You would immediately come to realize that the shadow is not the real thing. You would fall on your face on the ground. The law, which was the very heart of the old Judaistic system, was only a shadow. The sacrificial requirements of the law were only a mere shadow of something better. And we must not misunderstand this. Because the shadow is a good thing. The shadow tells us a whole lot about something. It, at the very least, indicates that there is something of substance there, right? You see a shadow, you know there's something of substance that is there. Without a substance, you have no shadow. And so the law, being the shadow proved that there was a better substance that was casting it as a shadow. There was something better, something more important. There was something more solid, something more real. The law was good. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that the law was perfect. It is a right, or it is right as a shadow. It is perfect and right as the shadow, as what is cast. It showed those who were thoughtful that there was something glorious that it was the shadow of. That there was a reality that was beyond it. And there's there's a very important distinction. And there's a very important distinction that the writer of Hebrews is making here in the wording that is used. Because the word for shadow here in chapter 10 is the word skia. Skia. And the word for form or the word for image, right? It is a shadow, verse 1, and it is not the very form. The word form is the word icon. Or your Bibles might say there in translation, the very image. That's the same thing. It's it's icon in the original language. A skia in the original language is simply a pale reflection. That's what it is. A pale reflection of what is real. Icon, however, is the very 
real thing itself, the very object itself. And so here, even in the language, you can see the contrast, the reality of the contrast. In fact, the Scriptures talk about this with Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, tells us that Christ is the very icon of the invisible God. In other words, God is spirit, John 4.24 says. No one sees God except Jesus Christ explains Him. Jesus Christ is the very icon. He isn't the shadow. He isn't the skia. He is the very icon of God. It is Christ who has made the invisible visible. He is the perfect and complete manifestation of God to us. The law... The Old Testament was never that icon. It was never that image. It was only the shadow. It was only the skia. It was only the pale reflection. And the shadow had limitations. And the writer of Hebrews points those limitations out. He says, first of all, the shadow, while good, while perfect, while necessary, first of all, was insufficient to fully cleanse. Insufficient to fully cleanse. Notice verse 1. It isn't the very form of things, so therefore it can never, by the sacrifices year by year, which they continually offer, in other words, the shadow required that, it could never make perfect those who draw near, otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers having once been cleansed, would no longer have the consciousness of sins. In other words, the sacrificial system was no longer really happening. No one was bringing that. It wouldn't have ceased if those sacrifices did what was required or what Jesus Christ has done. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. But since it couldn't do that, it was insufficient to fully cleanse In those sacrifices, there's no reminder or there is a reminder of sins year by year because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, I want us to be careful here because sometimes I believe we can think that this is the first time these Jews or anyone else had heard this kind of truth, that the law or the sacrificial system, the outworking of that law was a a shadow of the real thing. In other words, sometimes we get this idea that the writer of Hebrews here in the New Testament is saying something new that they must not have ever known. That they didn't know this idea between the law being a shadow of what was to come, something better. And yet the reality is that they had understood it, in fact, been taught it for thousands of years through the Psalms and the Prophets. Let me just give us a few scriptures to show us this. Here is what David said in Psalm 51, after he acknowledges his sinfulness. And he says in verse 16 and 17, You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering, The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. 
God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. David, in the midst of his greatest sin of his life, at least by way of action, maybe not in his heart, but by way of the outworking of it through the sin that he had and the murder that that went on with it and the deception that was following all of that and all of that taking place, David goes before God and he says, If I could come to you according to the law with a sacrifice and completely get my sin awashed, I would do that. But that's not what you want. Here's what Samuel said to King Saul. After Saul had been told to go to the Amalekites and totally destroy them. King Saul comes back and takes some of the spoil. Samuel comes along because of what God had told him. And he knows that they didn't obey God. And he says, did the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Saul, you you were told to do something. You have not done it. And you're saying that in that, oh, I'm going to give that to the Lord. I'm going to sacrifice that to God. And Samuel says to Saul, listen, Saul, do you think God's more honored with a sacrifice that you supposedly are going to make or obedience? obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than the fat of rams. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 and 13. What are all your sacrifices to me? This is God speaking. What are all your sacrifices to me? Asked the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls and lambs and male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths, the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. Israel was in this in this place in their heart where they said, Oh, we love you, God. We love you, God. We want to do what you require of us, what the law says. And God says, Your heart is fully wrong. You want to say you know me, and yet you run headlong into sinfulness. Stop bringing that to me. I don't want to have anything to do with it. In fact, I am sick and tired of your offering. And later, at the end of Isaiah, in chapter 66... The Lord says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? Where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble, who is contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their punishments. I will bring on them what they dread because... I called, and nobody answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. 
and they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7 says the same things. God says in Hosea, Hosea 6.6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offering. In Micah's prophecy, he said this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what the psalmist was saying to the people. That's what the prophets were saying to the people. They knew what God required. They knew that acting out the law, that doing all this religious ritual, especially by way of sacrifice, would do nothing for them and their heart be running headlong in sin. This is the foolishness of Catholicism. This is the foolishness of moral Christianity. This is the foolishness of trying to attempt to appease God based upon your works. God requires none of that from you. God requires one thing and one thing only, that you would bow before Him, that you would humble yourself before His Word, that you would believe what He said about His Son. This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to the Jews. Your sacrificial system was just a shadow. It was a skia of the icon. And so it's obvious that at the time of Christ, many very pious Jews would would have been honoring or at least attempting to honor the sacrificial system. All along they knew that those sacrifices could never remove their sin. Just a side note, by the way, I think this is why when the temple got destroyed in A.D. 70, the people so easily adapted to a system whereby there were no physical sacrifices. Sacrifices stopped. If sacrifices could remove sin, they would have quickly built something in order to do the sacrifices on, but they just adapted a new system. For them, it was never about obedience from a pure heart. It was never obedience based upon what God said, based through faith in what God had said about His Son. It was all about personal rightness gained through duty. They understood that animal sacrifices were insufficient to fully cleanse their soul of sin. This is exactly what verse 2 is indicating. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered? Because worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sins. In other words, they would have no reason to go sacrifice anything if their sin had been taken care of. If there was a cleansing, then there would be no need for a sacrifice. But there was no perfect cleansing. That's the writer's point. So there was no ease of conscience. 
There's no perfect cleansing. There's no guilt lifted. And so there is no ease of the conscience. The sacrifices continued. Do you understand what he's saying? The blessing of freedom from a guilt-risen conscience is not possible through duty. It is not possible through effort. He's saying it is not possible through the shadow. A man sins. In the Old Testament, someone sinned, he brings an offering. He goes away, he sins again. In fact, the moment he leaves the offering there, he's, he's sinning in his heart in some kind of way, in his thoughts, so he comes back again and he has to offer again and he sins again. The cycle continues over and over and over again. There was never complete cleansing, never a heart of peace. Why? They couldn't cleanse. It was impossible. But there was another deficiency with the system of sacrifices. Not only did they were they completely insufficient to fully cleanse, but they actually created a continual remembrance of sin. That's what verse 3 says. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. In other words, the whole sacrificial system, the whole shadow, the whole skia, and the need for continually going and sacrificing in the mind of the worshiper is just that, a remembrance of the sin of the past. I have to continue to go to take care of all those things that have stacked up against me. And you hear it today. Boy, I certainly hope that my pile of good things is better than my pile of bad things. You hear that all the time from people. I think, I'm hopeful, it might happen. Boy, gee, I hope God in some day will accept me by judgment because my pile of goodness is better than my pile of badness. Think about it. Every time someone stood before the priest and every time they went to the annual day of atonement, they would think to themselves, "Uh, I was here last year. I had to bring a sacrifice before, and I was here before that, and I was here before that. And it goes all the way back to the fact when they were conscious of their sin. It was never-ending. A perpetual reminder of sinfulness over and over again, never having been really taken care of. The sad conclusion that every thoughtful person would come to was, this is never going to end. It's never going to end. Now listen, for those who believe upon Jesus Christ by faith, it's different. It's different. No, it's not that we have no conscience about sinning. We ought to have a conscience about sinning. It is right to have that conscience about sinning. But here's the difference. Because of Christ and because of His sacrifice, we are no longer burdened with a conscience of sin that isn't been taken care of. If you are burdened in your heart, you say you believe in Jesus Christ, you say you place your faith in Him, you say you trust what God said about His Son, and you have a burden of sin upon your heart, believing that it hasn't been taken care of, then you need to go back to Christ and see who He is. 
We have no burden of the conscience of sin heaped upon us over the past. The guilt of sin is taken away for those who know Jesus Christ because through Jesus Christ we are now right with God. We are right with the judge. We can approach God with boldness. Why? 1 John 2.1 If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ the righteous. The Old Testament Jew didn't have that. At least those that didn't believe in what God said about His Son. That means for you and I as Christians that in Christ we no longer stand accused. We no longer stand guilty before God, fearful of God to be in His presence. Our sins, all of them, past, present, future, they have been judicially or judiciously, I should say, dealt with. And the penalty was dealt with on the cross. Here's how one old poem put it. All my sins were laid upon Him. Jesus bore them on the tree. God who knew them laid them on Him. And believing... I am free. That's it, isn't it? If we sin as believers, please say you do. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. So don't do that. We do sin as believers, don't we? And when we sin, our communion with God is interrupted. There is a, 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 a tremor in the relationship, if you will. Something that has caused an interruption. But because we know Jesus Christ by faith and because we have the seal of the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit, the, the one who comes alongside, the Greek word, the paraclete, the, the parakletos, the one who is alongside us all the time. He, he's the one who comes alongside. He assists us. Towards God. You say, how so? Out of conviction for the wrong that we have done. And with His aid, I trust we confess. And when we confess, repent of our sin, our communion with God is restored once again. Not our position with God, that hasn't been affected, but our communion with God is restored. The question of penalty is never raised before God in Christ. Why? Because for us who know Jesus Christ, it is not a matter of guilty anymore. That's not the problem. Without Christ, there is a guilty issue that must be taken care of. There is a penalty laying upon you that still must be dealt with. But in Christ, that guilty has been taken care of. The penalty has been paid. There is not a guilty problem anymore. In Christ, we are simply God's children, erring children when we sin, but we are God's children and we need to be restored to a communion with the Father. That wasn't possible to the Jew under the Old Covenant. It was impossible through the skia, 
verse 4 says, For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. See, our sin has been taken away. The guilt of our sin has been removed. That's impossible through the sacrificial system. That's impossible through moral attempts. That's impossible through religious activity. It's impossible. God requires and desires, get this, God requires and desires of all His people obedience. You think, well, now, here you go, back to works. No, no. A complete life of abandonment to Him. That's what we mean when we say that. But sin entered into the system. Sin came in through the man, Adam. And so... Out of grace and because of mercy, God decreed and ordained sacrifices. And they provided an atonement, a covering. That's what atonement means. They provided a covering uh, for a time. Why? So that God in His holiness could deal with sinful man. Something had to die. The wages of sin is death. Something had to die. God ordains this gracious system. In fact, God was the first one who did the sacrifice in the garden with Adam and Eve by clothing them. They'd never known death, and yet their sin caused it. And so, God ordains this system. But those sacrifices could never remove the fact of sin. could never remove the fact of sinning. God always required total abandonment of self in obedience to Him. That was His requirement all the time, right? If you will do what I say, Adam and Eve. Adam, here's what I'm telling you to do. Do this. If you'll do that, you'll have a blessed life in the glory. He did not do that. Man disobeyed. How blessed it would have been if both sin and the desire to sin could have been removed from the hearts and lives of you and I when we were born in that way. How blessed it would be if we were able to live fully and completely abandoned of self in total obedience to God, never sinning at all. That would be great. But that's not reality. There was never any power in the blood of the system. There was never any power in the sacrifice even in the death of the animal, to take away sin. Nothing in the blood of bulls and goats could affect a change, an ultimate change. The animal on the altar represented one thing, total abandonment to God. That animal gave its life. But that abandonment was limited in the fact that it could never take away the sin. It could never produce in the man what God required of the man. The man could never do enough. But there was a solution, thankfully. In verse 5 through 9, we get a glimpse at the divine conversation between the Father and the Son. It's quotes from the Old Testament, but this is what it's picturing. And I don't want us to miss in this the the sufficiency that is in view here. The sacrificial system, the law, the skia was insufficient. Here is the sufficiency within 
what God had pointed out. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. course, we notice that little word at the beginning of verse 5, therefore. We love that in Scripture. That always helps us explain what they're talking about here. Therefore, it points us back to what has just been said. Because of the insufficiency of the blood of dead animals to, to do a complete cleansing, because of the inability of those sacrifices to absolutely remove sin, there came into the world a man a blessed man who would, in fact, do the will of God perfectly. I think we need to mark it in our minds. Maybe you want to even mark it on your page. There had never been a man like this. There had never been. There never will be. So this is the one who has prior existence. This is the God-man. This is Jesus Christ. This is God the Son voluntarily coming into the world to accomplish on behalf of men what man could never accomplish on his own, a life completely abandoned to the will of God. First John, or John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 and verse 14, I think make it very clear to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what it's talking about. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It could not be any clearer. At least it shouldn't be any clearer in our minds. This is about Jesus Christ. This is the coming of the Godhead to earth. In Christ, He took us to glory by faith in Him. He says these words in the divine conversation with the Father. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. If God the Father, if if God could fully eradicate sins through the system of a sacrifice of an animal, Christ would have brought a whole host of animals with him to accomplish this. It seems a bit strange to us when we read it at first. How can it be that Jesus could say, that being God himself, and say that God the Father didn't desire sacrifice and offerings when in fact he was the one who commanded those offerings in the Old Testament? I think the answer is actually quite simple. Here it is. God ordained them. God commanded them in order to enable Himself in perfect holiness who could not look upon sin, the Scriptures tell us, in order for Him to deal with a sinning people without completely destroying them. But the will of God was 
for so much more than sinning people bringing sacrifices. It's so much more than that. God never meant it to be the solution. The ultimate desire of the Godhead was that you and I have lives to be lived in complete abandonment to Him where there is no need for a sacrifice at all. And so God commands a sacrifice out of gracious mercy, but He desired so much more. He desired a devotion to His will in holiness of life, the pursuit of His good pleasure, so that offerings were not necessary at all. Sinful men were never able to live like that. There's always a consciousness of sin. And so they brought sin offerings. They brought what they believed would take care of that, and yet they attached to that a taking care of it forever, just like man does today. Just like the whole Catholic Catholic system is built on and deceives billions of people believing that if they just do the certain things there would be enough infused grace into their lives and then even after they die through the prayers and payments of others on their behalf to get them into glory. Absolute lie. Absolute lie. And I'll say this unequivocally here. The Pope himself will burn in hell if he does not know Jesus Christ by faith. It's only by Him who has come into the world who would perfectly do the will of the Father. That's what verse 7 says. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So the Son Himself comes in the incarnation and takes on the form of man and participates in flesh and blood. He, he becomes man, as he, or Philippians 2 says, and He puts Himself into the position for rendering to the Father, the perfect obedience that God requires. And so here, in verses 5 through 7, we are listening to the Son's most intimate conversation with the Father as to the way in which He would become man. In obedience to the will of the Father and for the fulfillment of God's divine requirement. To accomplish on behalf of men what men could never accomplish by themselves and never could save themselves. Godhead wants a life that needs no offering. When which when one which was in itself a body presented as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, as Romans chapter 12 says. And so Christ came. He came to be consumed fully upon the altar for God the Father as God wanted it to be. He came to fulfill the perfect will of God as God had always desired it to be. Right? 
after saying above, sacrifice in verse 8, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired nor have you taken pleasure in them, which of course is according to the law, the shadow. Then he says, Behold, I have come to do your will. I have come to fulfill completely, perfectly all that you have desired. And therefore then, at last here, there is such a life that would bring pleasure to God. Here is His Son, the only one who could bring ultimate pleasure to the wisdom of the Godhead and fulfill completely the requirement and desire of the Godhead. This life would require no offering for itself. Nothing to atone for. Nothing to cover up for. No sin to be taken care of. His life would require none of that, but He would be in and of itself, Himself, the God-man. He is the fulfillment of all of the previous offerings and all that they had foreshadowed. He's the fulfillment of all of that. He is the life completely yielded to God the Father and to His will. It would mean that ultimately His would be the ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifice. That's why the writer of Hebrews comes to verse 10 and gives us the result of what would take place. What could not, what was insufficient through the blood of animals was sufficient through the Son, Jesus Christ. And the result, salvation for all who believe. Notice what he says, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, if you were confused in verses 5 to 7 as to who the body was, now it's clear. I alluded to it, I even said it plainly, and yet here the writer of Hebrews in just a few sentences later tells us clearly By this will, by the will of the Father, we have been made holy. That's what sanctified means. We have been made holy, how? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In other words, no need for another sacrifice. You don't have to do it. You couldn't do it. In the will of God and by the will of God and for the will of God, all who believe in Jesus Christ are made holy. Sanctified. We are set apart. We are holy before God. He he can be with us. We can be with Him and not be consumed. We are set apart from the world by the will of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for God's pleasure if we believe in Him. The world is in revolt against God. Mankind brings no pleasure to God. In fact, the Scriptures say He is angry with the wicked every day. But there is a people separated unto Him for His glory and for His pleasure, and that is those who believe upon His Son. They are sanctified. So every true believer is part of of that little word in verse 10, we. That's every true believer. They're in that group. 
By this will we, the, the true believer, those who are sanctified because they believe what God said concerning His Son, they've confessed their sin with their mouth, they believe in their heart, gee, God raised Him from the dead and they are saved. And their life is an expression of that by total abandonment to God. So it is the cross of Christ that makes the difference between the believer and the world. The body in which Christ lived for God and pleased God and accomplished the will of God is now, according to that same will, offered up as the perfect sacrifice. Once for all. No longer a need for even a temporary covering Jesus Christ became obedient to the point of death. Following the will of the Father even to the point of death in the most heinous way. Death on a cross. The Bible clearly declares if we will believe in Jesus Christ then we have been set apart for obedience to Christ. Not in order to gain pleasure with God, but because we have pleasure in the sight of God through the sacrifice of His Son on behalf of you. There's no guilt for sin anymore. That's gone. When you sin, the communion is broken and that must be restored. But the penalty and the guilt of that sin that would have separated you from God for eternity has been taken care of in Christ. In Christ, we have been set apart. And by the Spirit we have been sealed. And through His Word we are equipped so that we will fully and can fully obey. That's why we must saturate ourselves in the truth. That's why we have to be in His Word. God desires our total abandonment to Him. We say we believe in Him. He desires our total abandonment to Him. And the people of the new covenant, those who believe in Jesus Christ, will delight to do His will. That doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly, but we are going to delight to do it. That is our desire. That is our drive. That is our direction. We want to do His will. Verse 19, he says this, and I'll just close with this passage. He says, since therefore, brethren, we, there's that we again, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the sacrifice of Christ, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through that veil, through the holy of holies, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, who is Jesus Christ, then here's how we worship God. Here it is. Then let us draw near with a sincere heart. In other words, sincerity in our heart, not this duplicity, not saying, oh, yeah, I love you, God, I love you, God. Yeah, living completely different, a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, in being fully assured that what we believe God said about His Son is how we walk, that's how we live. It is that reality that drives us. We have a full assurance of faith. And having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You see, that's the guilt. 
God said, if you believe upon my son, all your sins are taken care of. The guilt, the penalty of your sin is taken care of. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Fully assured in your faith? See, if you're not fully assured in your faith, then then there's something holding you back. There's some doubt there that's going, well, wait a minute. I know what God said, but if God is who He said He is, and if God says what He says He does, and if Jesus Christ is who God says He is and we believe it, then we're fully assured of that. So we approach God with a sincere heart because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies have been washed. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast to Jesus Christ. Without wavering, don't doubt it. Why? Because He who promised is faithful. And because He's faithful, it's as sure as He is who He said He is. We have hope in Jesus Christ. Because we have hope, we are to think about how we can stimulate one another to both love one another and live out those things. Where does it start? Right here. Not forsaking, being, worshiping together. Encourage one another in that. We stimulate. Because we see the day drawing near. Time is almost over. Might be today. And so we come together around communion because Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, commanded it. Not because it brings us any kind of righteousness. We already have it. We are already seen in Christ if we believe in Jesus Christ. And yet it helps us remember all that God has accomplished in order to put us in that position. Let's bow together as we prepare our hearts for a time in communion. Father, we thank You for sacrifice. We thank You for the shadow because the shadow tells us there's a substance. And the shadow did what it did. It was ordained by You. It certainly allowed You to deal with sinful men only because You had a greater substance to come. And God the Son did come took on sinful flesh. You made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He committed no sin, was innocent completely, followed Your will to the T, never did anything that was in any way could be attributed to sinfulness. And yet He died a sinner's death, not because of His sin, but because of ours. He received what we deserved. And you lavish upon us who believe upon Him all that we do not deserve. Because you love Him. And in loving the Son, you have loved us and lavished upon us 
all that you have given him. What a miraculous reality. We deserve none of it. And we have been given it all. Is it any reason in us for us who believe upon Jesus Christ to not say, I surrender all? I surrender all? Lord, help us reflect upon these things because like in those passages from the Old Testament, you do not want our hearts wrong when we come to you. And your table reminds us of, of the ultimate cost and, and what you desire. And, and so we don't want to come with a heart that says, oh, we love you, but in our life we know there's issues that have violated our communion with you. Help us deal with those first. Not come with a heart of sin so that you want nothing to do with that. You say, go away. Show the fruit of true repentance. Help us confess those things before you. Make them right before you. If it's sin against one another, sin against a brother or sister in Christ, we deal with that. Let the elements pass and not bring judgment upon ourselves. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We want to do it. By your Spirit, motivate us, challenge us to hold strong. By your Spirit, hold strong to Christ and walk by faith. For it's in His name that we pray.